Hello. Hey, John. <clears throat> oh, hi, Dan. <laughs> why, why were you sending video before? I, I wasn't. I didn't intend to do that. Every. <laughs> I mean. I don't know. I must have just clicked on the button wrong. I was imagining you in your smoke, your velvet smoking jacket and slippers and everything, and it looked like you were just dressed like a regular person. I mean, a regular person. If a regular person is wearing a vintage Aloha shirt, yeah, is a regular person wearing a vintage Aloha shirt? Yeah, is that what a regular person is doing? I think so. I mean, a lot of the stuff I own is vintage, just because I've had it for so long. Right. That's the crazy thing is that something is 30 years old and it's vintage, <laughs> right. but of course. Right. Like this belt I have is a vintage belt because yeah. I haven't thrown it out yet. Yeah. There's, there's cream <laughs> creamer in my refrigerator from 30 years ago. <laughs> well, welcome back to the uh, continental United States. Yeah. It's nice to be home in America. I went and talked to the contractors over at my house today. And, you know, last night I woke up uh, a couple of times with anxiety dreams about Ooh. the construction that's going on at my house. Oh, what you are you know, having? What are you having done? We haven't talked about it on on this episode, on this show yet, so I'm not um, not sure what it is. Oh, you know, I had uh, I had um, I had remodel creep. When I got the house, I knew that it you know it had never been touched since 1955. No work had been done. It still had all the original everything, and I knew that. In 1955, they didn't build houses so that they would never need anything. Um, so I knew there was going to be some dry rod in the bathrooms. I knew there was going to be some stuff that needed to get done. Um, but I, you know, I bought the house cheaply uh, with that in in mind. And I think the fact that it needed so much work is why I was able to get it so cheaply. So right. I had the I had a little bit extra budgeted to fix it up. But as soon as I and, you know, I tore the walls down in the bathroom and sure enough, they needed, there There was dry rot and it needed to be uh, remediated. That's not that big of a deal. But once I had the walls down, you know, I'd always intended, I think, uh, in remodeling a bathroom because mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time in the bath. Yeah. I, uh, I always intended to make my perfect bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and the perfect bathroom for me is not one with a giant vanity. It's not one with, you know, all the mod cons. It's just one that has a nice bathtub. Right. And so in order to do that, I had to, I had to take a, take a wall down and take over some space, some closet space in the adjoining bedroom. And so I took that wall down and, you know, I'm taking all the trim off cause I want to preserve the trim. Well, as soon as I got that wall down, I realized that the other wall in that bedroom also needed to move because when this is the, it a was big, just, uh, this is a big project you're describing. Yeah. Here. It, it started to be a bigger project primarily because in that sense, at least moving that wall, it was just an oversight on the part of the architect my feeling is that the original owner who had the house designed and built and then added onto by the same architect, he was a Boeing engineer. And my feeling was he was one of those guys that stood over the shoulder of the architect and over the shoulder of the original building contractor making minor adjustments to like, well, you know, we don't need to go all that way. Why don't we just you know, do this. I'll, I'll, I'll fix it later. I'll fix it in the mix. 
so there's there was just one wall that it just seemed to me that the architect wanted to do something more interesting and the owner was like just put the wall right there so i was like no that needs to change and uh my friend ben king down in portland is an architect and so he was intrigued by it the house is the same vintage as a lot of the houses built by his professors of architecture so he knows the vernacular Mm -hmm. he came up with a great design for the for the the moving of this wall that added a lot of character to the back part of the house but pretty soon it was all torn apart and then it was above my pay grade to put it all back together so i hired a contractor um, a friend of mine named Peter, who actually was the original bass player of the Long Winters, he cool. works, but he was a friend of mine from a long time before that. He uh, he works for a general contractor, and so I employed them to do this work. But you know, their contractor, they're doing big, big projects, places. So, and I'm pretty on the fence about picking fixtures, tile stuff like that. Cause I don't like to just go to Lowe's and buy the shelf, the off the shelf stuff. And that becomes an issue because that's what contractors are used to doing. And I'm like, well, I found this toilet on Craigslist for 80 bucks, but it needs to be, you know, it needs all the rubber replaced. And they're like, what? You can get a toilet at Lowe's for 200 bucks. And I'm like, yeah, it looks like a toilet. You got a Lowe's. So there's a little bit of, you know, to find a contractor that wants to restore a 1950s house to look like a 50s house, uh-huh. I think probably in Palm Springs, there are plenty of contractors that are just like really versed in that aesthetic. Uh, and, you know, and these guys are, they're willing to do what I want, but like, honestly, I feel like the best ever, uh, like mixer, uh, I'm sorry, water, uh, what's the, even the term for it? The thing in the bathtub that you reach up and turn the water on with the, whatever that is. Would you call it a, and, a faucet? Well, not, it's not the faucet that where the water comes out. It's the, it's the knob. It's oh, the, the knob that you adjust to use the temperature control. Right. And right. somewhere along the line, uh, the fashion became like a twist Right. Handle. Instead of two separate ones, it's one, one handle that goes between the cold and the hot or off. Right. And the, yeah. the problem with a lot of them is that they twist where as you turn the pressure of the water up, it also changes the temperature from cold to hot. Yes. And in the tubs that I grew up with, there was a sort of a lucite knob or a, a you know, a clear plastic knob shaped like a supernova. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and you could lift it up to turn the water pressure on, mm-hmm. but turn it side to side to change the temperature. And what that allows you to do is to turn the water on hot, but just a trickle. Yeah. And that, that's very important to me that you be able to do that. Now, if you have the kind with two faucets, hot and cold, you can adjust it so that you get exactly the right temperature and a trickle of water, but you have to spend all afternoon, you know, mucking it with it. Whereas with the big Lucite, uh, like star knob, 
Mm-hmm. You just move it to where you want it and leave it. And the reason that I like that little hot trickle is that the the sound of the trickle, the plip, 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 a little bit more than that, you know, like a, a little running sound, it sounds like a stream to me. It sounds mm. like a little, little meditative, it kind of is a white noise, but I don't want the water on all the way because then your tub fills up and you got to turn it off. I just want this little... This little drip, this little trickle, and it keeps the tub warm. It's this whole process that I've been dealing, you know, I I figured this out when I was 10 years old. I just wanted that water on a little bit. But that's no longer a design. Or if it is, it's the it's rare to find. If you go to the if you go to the uh, the stores now that sell that kind of fixture, oh, they got every kind of thing and they all look exactly the same and they all look like shit. Anyway, so I have to find either, you know, some legacy company that's in, you know, Genesee, New York, that still manufactures whatever the knob is that I'm looking for, or I have to find a vintage one that's been restored. And I was going to say, it like, sounds like you want a, a new knob, especially. I think you want when you're building a new bathroom to have a new knob. I agree, especially based on how much we know you're going to use it. I'm going to use it and I don't want it to, I don't want that to be the weak link. No. Anyway, I met these guys today. I was having these terrible uh, feelings of anxiety last night and actually meeting them today and talking to them um, made me feel like the work is actually going to get done. Unfortunately, one of the guys from Mm. the contractor ordered the wrong tub. And as soon as I saw it, it was the wrong tub. And I had specifically told them what tub I wanted. And the guy was like, Oh, well that was discontinued. So I got the other one. And I was like, without checking with you, without checking with you. What he said was he didn't read all the way into the oh email God. and that's what he thought I meant. I mean, it's like a big, it's no. a, it's a, no, it's a clusterfuck. Can you fire so this they got guy? A, I mean, this is uh, outrageous. His boss should fire him. I mean, he's I, one I of wouldn't. these guys, you know, Dan, I don't think he has an inner voice. I think he, he seems to be someone who talks out loud to hear his thoughts mm-hmm. and that's how he knows what he's thinking. Is this the guy it's, you want working on your forever home? Uh, well, the guy that's actually doing the work is a guy named Alberto and Alberto is very good at his work and he knows what he's doing. But, uh, you know, Alberto is from Mexico and the guys that are in charge of Alberto don't want Alberto being the one that is offering creative input. And so Alberto and Alberto's English isn't the best. And he and I spend a lot of time talking and I will say, Alberto, what do you think? And he's like, well, I'm not supposed to say about design. And I'm like, I know, but what do you think? And he's like, well, I wouldn't do it this way. And so Alberto and I have an understanding. Mm -hmm. Alberto offers a lot of creative advice and I think his bosses really respect him. They just want to keep uh, the. Do they want to keep the division of? Uh, they want to keep the hierarchy or whatever. The you know the boss makes the creative input. Um, but Alberto and I have a good relationship, and he is building the house well. It's just that his supervisor isn't listening yeah. sometimes. Right. 
anyway, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be fine. Life is fine. It's good. It's, it's going to be fine. I'm still not living in the house that I bought, but it's going to be fine. Eventually, I'm going to live in it, and then, uh, and then I'll have some new problem. So anyway, <laughs> that's where I'm at with that. Right. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. a good, I mean, it's good to hear the update and, um, I mean, how, what's your ETA on when you think you'll be getting in there to the new house? I mean, that's the, that's the problem. I would yeah. never have thought that it would be, I mean, it's still February, right? And I only took possession of the house in November. So it's not, it's not crazy. No. The, uh, the amount of time that. I have owned it without living in it. Mm -hmm. I think there are people that buy a house and don't move in for a year. Sure. Uh, but that's not what I want. I want to live there. And so I think that my friend Peter said, once we get all the stuff lined up, uh, it's going to go really fast. And I'm like, okay, uh, if you say so. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah could be worse yep it could be worse yep but he do but you know this um this spring you know spring is the busy time for me that's when i travel the most so i'm gonna be gone a lot this uh maybe even a little bit more than usual Mm. and that is you know that complicates matters on the one hand it'd be great if i came back from these trips and it was done on the other hand i'm not here to supervise like for instance if i had not gone over and looked at the tub and gone what no you can just look at this tub and know that it's wrong uh then they probably would have installed it at which point that would have been yeah that would have been bad but now you feel like what are you going to do if if there's stuff going on and you've got to travel you might come back and find you know a completely different vanity has been installed or whatever i guess i gotta i guess i've uh i've gotta employ uh, contemporary technology where people can send photographs via the internet. Mm-hmm. You can look at them no matter where you are in the world. You could be somewhere very far away and look at a picture or see a video of you're a just thing. Saying you're, you're prepared to take extra steps. You're prepared to take additional measures to correct. ensure that things go well, even when you're on the road. That's correct. Okay. That's my plan. Yeah. That's, that's my plan. And, uh, hopefully, hopefully, you know, I'll get back at the end of the spring from all these different adventures and I will move into, move into my new house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Inshallah. As we say. Mm -hmm. No, I don't know what that means. Uh, it, uh, it's an Arabic term. It means God willing. Oh. And they say it, uh, they say it all the time, inshallah, or inshallah, depending on how, what Arab uh, country okay. you're hearing it in. Uh, and they say it as a way of kind of warding off. They say like it. Like a Gesundheit kind of thing, except opposite. You say it first. Uh, no, you, you say it at the end of us, of any kind of statement that anticipates the future. Oh. And it's a way of warding off the bad luck of saying, well, tomorrow when I'm in Amsterdam, because they don't want to tempt fate. They don't want to say right, that. And right. then they, the plane crashes or for some reason they're not in Amsterdam. So they say tomorrow when I'm in Amsterdam, inshallah, 
Mm. I will see my sister or whatever. It's just a, it's just a little, it's a habitual, um, turn of phrase, inshallah, uh, that just sort of protects them against fate. And it's, uh, and so every once in a while, when I say something that, that I put, I, that I don't want to, I don't want to tease God. I don't want to give God an opportunity to say, oh, you think so, huh? You think you're going to be in Amsterdam tomorrow? Well, let's just, you know, I wasn't even paying attention, but now you've, you've, you've got my hackles up. You just say, God willing. And then I think God is mollified and God goes, oh yeah. All right. Sure. I'll let, sure. I'll ward off disaster for you. It's a little bit of the, it's a little bit of the warding off an evil eye. You, you don't have that in this, uh, in, um, in the, uh, Semitic tradition of the, I mean, of the Israelites. I'm sure there is something like that. Uh, maybe my, um, you know, Jewish brethren could write in to the show and tell me what that is, but I, I don't know anything about that. I mean, there's things that you say, you know, like to wish someone good health or something like that, but I don't. It's not occurring to me as I'm listening to you talk that we have something that is sort of specific for that, but I'm, I'm sure there is. I just don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's a, I think it's a fascinating, you know, if you, if you follow Noam Chomsky and you, and you consider the prospect that grammar is innate and that language has form and shape that's pre-cultural. Uh, it's always interesting to, for me at least, to see the little quirks and bubbles of, and I'm, believe me, I'm no linguist, nor am I polylingual, but just picking up those little bits of habit or, um, uh, yeah, sort of, uh, what, what would you say? Ticks, verbal ticks. Yeah, sure. Of, of different languages. You know, the way the, the Japanese say desu, uh, just the little, little bits that kind of give you an insight into the way the culture thinks, because that whole like, inshallah, it's a, it's insight into, um, a mentality. Right. Sure. And that, and that insight into a mentality is it, it's informative, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of, as you travel the world or as the world travels to you. We would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace. There is so much that you can do with Squarespace. Create a beautiful website. Let's you turn your cool idea into a site. Whatever the idea is, you've got a website now. Pretty cool. Showcase your work, blog, or publish content. You can sell products and services. You can promote your physical or online business. It's all there. Anything you want to do, you get in there, you customize the heck out of this thing. You look and feel the settings, the products, just a few clicks, and you have completely customized and created your own unique awesome website. And the way that works is when you're signing up, you go sign up. They're not sitting there saying, oh, we need all this information and typing, typing, typing. No, it's all visual. That's what makes it so cool. They start you out by asking like, what kind of business do you have? Or what's your idea? And you like click a couple things. They're like, we think 
based on what you just told us, you might want to go with this cool template or this one or this one. It's a starting point, but you can change it anytime you want. That's one of the coolest things about Squarespace. You can change the look and feel of your entire website just by picking a new template. And you can do this immediately, or you can do it in six months or a year or whenever you want to do it. So much that you can do with Squarespace, there isn't enough time to tell you. But you know what you can do? You can go to squarespace.com slash roadwork. That'll get you a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code roadwork, one word, to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or a domain. Because you know what? They do domains too. You want to register a domain with your site or just register a domain. You can do it. Squarespace.com slash roadwork, promo code roadwork, and save that 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Thanks very much to Squarespace for making this show possible. As the world travels to you. These days, these days the world travels to you as much as you travel to it. The coronavirus travels to you. Coronavirus, it's coming. Are you worried worried about that you might be like patient? Well, it's too late for you to be patient zero in the United States. But with all the traveling you're going to do, do you feel like you might be responsible for contributing to the spread (coughs) of the coronavirus? I am, I honestly uh, am scared of getting sick. Mm-hmm. I've always been susceptible to getting sick. I, I feel like my immune system isn't as strong uh, as I would, I w- as I would prefer, yeah. I, you know, and I'm often catching colds that turn to upper respiratory infections and I hate it. And as I've gotten older, I hate it more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my particular brand of claustrophobia really doesn't like my breath being restricted. Oh, so you can't, you can't wear an N95 uh, mask even if you wanted to. Oh, I can wear one of those, but I'm talking about if I get an upper respiratory infection, it's really, you know, where you're, where you're like like, congested and you can't breathe and then you feel like trapped. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't like that. I don't even like talking about it. And so I'm afraid of colds. I'm a, and I've started being one of these compulsive hand washers. You know, if I shake someone's hand or if Amen. I touch Amen. a doorknob, this I go is wash the my hand. this is maybe the best thing you've ever said to me. And it and it has actually helped me not get sick. Yes, uh, that's the point. Making sure to wash your hands has actually had a noticeable effect. Knock on wood, enchilada. Yeah. Um, sounds like enchilada. Enchilada. Yeah. If you said enchilada, it would confuse everyone, but it would it think it. I think it's really just a a little talisman. It's really equivalent. If to I knock went, on so if, if if I went to one of those countries that you're talking about, and I sure. and I was speaking and it, to someone there, and I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, I, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Enchilada. Would they know yeah, what enchilada. I was talking about? Do you uh, think? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, if you said it over and over like that, eventually someone would go, are you trying to say inshallah? Maybe they would, but they might also just nod and smile because it's, yeah. I mean, when people are talking to me in a thick, thick accent or in their own language and mm-hmm. I'm trying to follow along, yeah. it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm, I mean, I'm nodding and smiling an awful lot. Uh-huh. Uh, even when people are pretty fluent in my language, even if they're speaking English to you, yeah. So like if you per- were like perfect hey, English, American English, I hope I hope I get there, enchilada. <laughs> I would be like, 
absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you know I, what I meant if I said it. I would say 100% enchilada. Yes. I mean, with you, Dan, who knows what you meant, what you might mean. Yeah. I would just go, yeah. Um, yeah. Unless you said it like a lot all of a sudden, then uh-huh. I would I would eventually <laughs> want to interrogate Yeah, you might call someone if I wouldn't stop saying it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Get some help. Get some help, Dan. Yeah. Well, John, I had proposed a topic mm. to you, not because it's something I want to talk about, mm. but because I feel that I need I need your help with it. Yeah. And I don't I I don't want to say what the topic is in case maybe you don't want to do it. And you didn't seem enthusiastic, and you in fact didn't really reply to me about it no, after that's I proposed right. it, which that's right. to me is an indication that you'd rather not discuss it and then that's fine and all you need to say is no and then i'll edit all this out no one will ever know no one will be the wiser the thing is that that uh, it's a it's like a it's like a general principle an operating principle for me that there is nothing i won't talk about yes right that's like except this (laughs) well no i'm not i am not somebody that is like oh i don't talk about that you know, I feel like everything should be talked about. Everything needs to be talked about. So if there's something that you want to talk about, Dan, then let's talk about it. Let's well, talk about it. What? It, but it sounds like there's a reason that maybe you you might not want to. There's all kinds of reasons that I don't want to talk about all kinds of things. Okay. But I, I go, I, I, I power past that because I feel like the more we talk about things, the less difficulty there is in the world well the reason that i was hesitant to talk about it even though i need help with it is because i like for this show in my in my mind this show is maybe not to the extent of uh, of omnibus which is designed specifically for you know for the future as a a time capsule gift to the future of humanity i would say this show is is that but in a secondary way so I don't want to talk about something that would like automatically date the show or make it a like, well, no one wants to listen to this episode because they just talked about this one thing. And now we know how everything turned out. So it, it's not interesting anymore. So I was trying to think of a way to make this maybe a broader, a broader topic in general that would continue to uh, be interesting in, for generations to come. Sure. Generations to come. Yeah. So why don't you just dive in, Dan? Okay. With what, what, what do you need? What do you need? Well, I, I need your help understanding uh, Bernie as a uh, presidential candidate here in, in 2020. Senator B- Bernard Sanders from Vermont. Yes. The junior senator from Vermont. Yes. Yeah. Who, who you've met. I have. In fact, I, I introduced, introduced him, him at yeah. a rally early on in his campaign in 2015. Now, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot about, and as for people who don't listen to the show, this is maybe, you know, this is somebody's first time listening to this show. Today, right Right now, now, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. And what those people might not know is that I'm not, I wouldn't put myself in a category of uh, politics. I'm not like a politics kind of a person generally much more now than I was when I was younger, but that's not saying a lot. I, uh, you you tend to have a libertarian personal philosophy. Yes. And, um, you know, and so that, that's kind of a, a guide for me as far as 
how I view things. I'm registered independent. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I've, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm in a situation here where I want to know more about who is currently the front runner for the, uh, for the, the Democrats. Right. And I'm, I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. I don't agree with a lot of stuff. I don't agree with anything, mm. but mm. in this situation, you know, I think it's it, one of the things that I hear a lot and I have read a lot is, uh, is talking about, and there was a, there was an episode, John, and I, I couldn't find, I looked before the show cause I couldn't remember which one it was, but in this episode, you were talking a lot about what being a Democrat is today versus what it was when we were growing up and how, and, and where that, although you are a Democrat, you don't necessarily see eye to eye with current, the current Democratic Party and things like that. I couldn't find the episode. I wanted to re-listen to it and I wanted to link it for the listeners. And I'm sure that one guy who has that amazing Wikipedia about you and all the stuff that you do, I'm sure that it would be there, but I, I, I failed. I failed you and I failed our audience in that I did not spend enough time researching that before the show. But that being said... What I hear a lot about Bernie is that he is a socialist and he apparently says that he's a socialist or has said that or things like that. And there's people for whom it doesn't matter because they like Bernie. And then there's other people who are saying that, well, you can't hire him because blink an eye. And now we're uh, now it's communism and uh, we're in a communist state. So I was hoping that you could maybe help me understand this and why people are concerned about that and what having a president like Bernie, whether he is socialist or not, what having a president like him might mean for me as an American uh, and, and, and just kind of help clarify this for me, because to be honest, like it's weird, not really understanding something as important as this. And I feel like I understand part of it, but not enough. And I don't know anybody else who knows as much as you do about politics and who's been following it and has in fact been involved in politics the way that you have. And so I don't know if this is the right place to ask, but I'm very curious. And I thought maybe there's at least one other person in the audience who would benefit from this weird question. Well, okay. I will try to not make this bad. So all the people that are listening who are wincing, whose fingers are poised over the stop button, <laughs> right? because they do not want to hear this again, I will try not to make this terrible. So the thing about socialism is that it is a continuum and we are already in some ways a socialist country. Um, socialism is just where the state uh, takes responsibility for um, for providing it for the public good a you know uh, like a central organization of um, a, a, a providing a service or providing some regulation or governance uh, that it that they recognize is important enough that you can't just leave it to individual people to work out for themselves or for private enterprise to deal with. So for instance, um, when Seattle was originally built and neighborhoods were constructed, uh, the water, like fresh water 
pipes were laid coming down from the mountains under the streets to provide fresh water for neighborhoods. And those, uh, those pipes were, were ventures. They weren't, it wasn't built by the city. A, a, a guy and his friends would say like, let's put a company together and we'll bring fresh water down because initially, you know, people were getting water for whatever from wells and right, wherever they could find the water. Right. Right. When a little, when a town gets built somewhere, the first thing they do isn't dig up the streets and lay pipe down. You know, it takes a while. And so, um, so enterprising people were like, let's provide water or let's provide a garbage service or let's, you know, let's string up some wires and bring electricity to people. Cause initially it isn't recognize that this is a public service and in the public good. Initially it's like, well, a lot of people don't want electricity, but we'll build this system and, you know, and then sell electricity to people. For instance, right now, the internet is run by companies. Right. Now at a certain point, 50 years from now, that's going to sound insane because the internet is now, it has become a public good. Everyone needs it, right? You can't apply for a job. You can't exist in the world right now without the internet. Right. And the idea that you would have to deal with competing companies will seem crazy once we recognize that the internet is a public service. And what will happen is the local government will take over the internet and it will become like electricity, like power and, you know, like water, like sewer. It will become a utility. Now that's a form of, you know, a form Are of socialism. Are you sure about that? that? I mean, do you, do you feel that that's inevitable that there's, yeah. and, and do you feel that that is a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. Okay. I mean, in general, uh, the idea of the market place providing internet, it's just, well, uh, do you have a good experience with your internet provider? I don't know many people who do. No. And for it to become just a utility, I mean, libertarians and people that are, that are, uh, that are essentially anti-government are always going to say, that the government is less efficient and does a poorer job than private enterprise. But that is not necessarily the case. In the United States, the, the, the competition between the, the two ideas, one of them being that marketplace efficiencies, by which we mean the the interest, the self-interest that a business has to streamline its processes in order to make the, the, the best profit they can means that they will provide efficiency and they will provide, um, in, in the end, lower cost. And the premise is that they will pass that lower cost onto the consumer because they will be competing against other companies. So they will, and this is why we fight monopoly because for that system to work, there need to be competing companies because that's what passes that efficiency on to the consumer. Right. Now the government doesn't have a vested interest in efficiency because a government, if a government takes over a service, it is, it is absolutely a monitor. Uh, I'm sorry, a, uh, a, a monopoly. So the argument is that private industry 
is is better, both because it it streamlines the process, it finds the most efficient path, and then it passes that that value onto the consumer. Now, the right. money that the consumer saves in the in paying those bills, the premise is that the consumer then invests that money either in uh, in their in their own well being by buying products that make their lives easier or they spend that money starting their own business or they spend that money just providing for the welfare of their families and that that money then goes back into the system and creates steady growth which provides affluence to everyone. Now that competes with the idea that the state or the the competing idea and what we're calling the socialist idea Mm -hmm. right is that the state has a vested interest in in uh, leveling opportunity, by which I mean the state says we want everyone to have a good education because a good education benefits the state. If if more people are educated, the 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 premise is that that uh, that benefits the entire society and it makes society run more efficiently. So for instance, education, if you can afford it, you can send your kids to a great school, but the state has an interest in making sure that, uh, that schools for the most part to the best of the state's ability provide a similar opportunity to education for every kid. Now the state also in a, in in what are called communist countries, right? Or what in uh, countries that are, um, where the state takes a very active hand, uh, you can get into situations where the state is providing almost every service. The state is in charge of the production of goods and the disbursement of goods, right? You can take that logic all the way to the idea of a planned economy where the, where the state is um, is effectively the entire economy, and that is something that that of course, well, and so so the challenge for the United States is that we have individualism and we have uh, at, at our core here, and we have come to describe individualism primarily as choice. And this is a sort of capitalist mentality, right? That choice between products is some uh, is 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 a way that we express individuality, which is one of our core values, right. independence. And so, what that means is that we have, for instance, if you want a four door car, capitalism has provided you with what 50 oh yeah 60 yeah different choices more maybe 150 choices of a four door car and and through that we are led to believe that we that our individuality is not threatened because if you want a Volkswagen and I want a Chevy we are free to make that choice and if a government, let's say, or any other organization tried to limit those choices, 
Americans would fucking lose their shit because it right. would even, even though we have 60 choices, 59 is unacceptable. Choices. Right. Right. Now, when I first traveled in Eastern Europe, it was not very long after the, the end of communism at the, after the end of, of, uh, those, uh, those countries having more or less planned economy. And one of the things that struck me profoundly was that walking around, uh, you know, walking across the Czech Republic, for instance, within the Czech Republic or within East Germany, within Romania, there were effectively one or two car companies in the Czech Republic. You could buy a Skoda in, um, East Germany, you could buy a Trabant. In uh, in Russia, you could buy a Lada. A lot of these cars were based on designs by Fiat. Um, and a lot of the cars on the road were manufactured by one company. So if you're walking on, you know, on some Czech road, it's Skoda, Skoda, Skoda. And then a Trabant goes by, but, but there's a, there was a tremendous uniformity in the cars and these cars were not good cars because they were, because the state did not have competition driving innovation. If you wanted a car, you just took the car the state provided. Right. And if you wanted a car with air conditioning, you didn't have an op- you didn't have an option. You couldn't go get a car with air conditioning. You just took right. the car. And so in that sense, and I mean just watching, hearing you describe that John sounds horrible to me. Horrible. Horrible to Americans, right? Like that would be I would move away from that country. You do not have the option. And so and because the market isn't driving innovation, these cars do not they they did not innovate a, a a a Trabant that was made in 1965 and a Trabant that was made in 1985 were the same basically <laughs> i mean you know they they i don't know what they changed the radio but but there was not there was not this constant evolution of technology and style and that's the other thing you know that style became in american cars a way of um, of increasing their appeal on the market. And so a lot of resources went into changing the design of a 1967 Pontiac when it became 1968 and 1969 and 1970. Like Pontiacs were in by from 67 to 70, the car changed completely. And during that same period of time, you know, the, the Trabant didn't change at all. The <laughs> Porsche 911 didn't either. Because there it was, was great though, not because the, because the country was sucky. Because, because it was great. But I mean, the 911 was pretty much unchanged from 67 to 1980 at least. Yeah, I mean, yeah, at yeah. a certain point, the 930 came in. But on the flip side... Watching these Trabants go by one after another, the Skodas go by one after another. After a while, it becomes clear that choice in the proliferation that we have in the United States is a sham because although there there needs to be innovation 
there needs to be progress, there do not need to be 150 kinds of four-door car. Particularly now, they're all identical. I challenge you to put a Nissan, a Chevy, a Toyota, a Honda, you know, the same base model or whatever, put them next to each other and take the logos off of them. I challenge you to tell them apart. Yeah. And so the individuality that we have tied to and connected to consumer choice, it's all a flim flam. There's no individual. That's not how you express your individuality. If we were given 10 kinds of car that were all, um, that all performed slightly different functions, you know, all you need is a two door car, a four door car, a six door car or whatever, a six passenger car, a van, a bus, a truck. I mean, that's really all you need. Yeah. The, the problem is how do you maintain innovation? How do you maintain efficiency? How do you, how do you keep, um, and how, and how do you provide enough choice that, you know, that there's a station wagon, you know, like people need to have choices, but, but the idea that consumerism has produced, which is that these choices are, are somehow equivalent to freedom is a big, that's a big sham. So within those two competing ideas, there are, there's a sweet spot, right? There's a sweet spot where there's enough choice and efficiency and market that, um, that things are improved upon and made well, but also that people have opportunity if they want to, if they do have an innovation, if they want to start a business, if they want to build something that there's a way for them to do that, there's a place for them to do that. Cause in those planned economies, if you're like, I've got a better way, you're not encouraged. There's no opportunity. You're not, a bank isn't there to give you a loan for you to start a company. And that ends up, being stifling and it ends up being, it, it ends up, that is a, that is a human impulse, uh, that works to our benefit. And if you want, if you take that opportunity away, you end up having to stifle it. Mm-hmm. You end up having to basically enforce a lack of opportunity. And that, that is a big part of, a, of what becomes a repressive environment. But on the other hand, consumerism and capitalism is what is what we call it um gone wild produces this 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 first of all this world of bullshit choice but second and the thing that we're most concerned about right now unchecked capitalism produces a concentration of resources a gradual skimming and concentration of wealth in the hands of a very few. And the way that that has happened in the United States is that what had formerly been regulation, government regulation over how banks could speculate, how, and by speculate, I mean banks used to be limited in what a bank could do with the money that people deposited there. You take up, you take your money to the bank. The bank can loan that money out. This is how a bank concept, right? You, the bank gives you 3% interest, but they loan it out 
at 10% interest. And that's the business of a bank. And in collecting the more interest than they pay out, the bank earns money. But at a certain point, some, somewhere there in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, banks made the case that they should be allowed to invest that money, that they should be allowed to take the money that you deposited and use it to speculate, to invest in the market, to provide funding for speculative, you know, where, where it's not they're loaning money to somebody, it's that the bank itself is using money to make money. And at that point, and this was, you know, this was the Reagan administration. This was the idea that, hey, you know, that will create growth, right? The more money that gets made, the more opportunity there is. The uh, George Herbert Walker Bush described, you know, this sort of trickle-down economics or, or Reagan too. Mm-hmm. The idea that if you make money at the top, that money trickles down and it benefits everybody. Uh, rather than have government services, we're going to have a thousand points of light where a thousand different wealthy people all all made up for the fact that there wasn't uh, there weren't benefits for people anymore. It's a whole philosophy that at its core to the people that buy into it is beautiful, right? Unlimited growth, unlimited choice and opportunity, things, you know, the money gets reinvested. Markets create this tremendous efficiency. Like it's a, it's a whole system of thinking. But unregulated, those banks took that money and speculated wildly and, you know, would loan or, you know, they're making billion dollar deals and individual bankers are taking 1% and 1% of a billion dollars is a shit ton of money. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's like, it's death by a million fees. All these, all these super rich people, you know, a lot of those investment bankers are just getting rich on these 1% fees on massive deals. And that money goes into this world where all of a sudden corporations feel like in order to get the best possible CEO, they need to offer a package of $20 million a year plus $20 million in stock. And I'm, you know, my uncle was one of these venture people. And I remember my dad saying to him, what possible guy is worth $20 million a year? What can that, what, how can you justify this? And my uncle saying with a complete straight face, cause he absolutely believed it, that in order to get the best guy, that's the kind of money you needed to put on the table because if you didn't, some other company would, and they would get the best guy. And the best guy is going to make so much more money for your company that the $20 million you're paying him is a drop in the bucket is the mentality. Well, John, was there, um, something you wanted to tell us about this week, something special maybe that you've been cooking up uh, way up there in Seattle? Yeah, I have a little ad um, that I'm inserting into the show in I the like form that. of an advertisement. Yeah. Hello, <laughs> it's an advertisement. Let's hear it. Uh, the Western State Hurricanes record, which I've talked about the, the, the making of over the last year or so and have been working on for a couple of years, is out now and it's on Bandcamp as well as Spotify and uh, Apple Music and whatnot. I, I do want to say people ask me all the time, which of the many ways to buy a record is the one that benefits me most directly. And it seems to me that Bandcamp is the, 
is the best place for it. It's um, it's much more connected to connected directly to the musician, unlike Apple or those other things. So if you're interested in buying it, it's the Western State Hurricanes. The record is called Through With Love. And uh, you can listen to it everywhere. And you can stream it on Bandcamp without paying for it. But, uh, but also you can buy it there. And that would be great. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy it. I think it's good. I think it's great. So this is what people need to do. Another way people can support you if they like your music, if they like the stuff that you're, you're doing and, uh, and they want, they love vinyl. It's all about vinyl these days. Isn't oh, it? there's a lot of vinyl. Yeah. So, uh, and you can get vinyl at, uh, the record label is latent print records and latent print still has some vinyl and some t-shirts for sale. So cool. So Google, Google them latent print and, uh, and you can buy that stuff, the actual merch. So cool. Now, socialism is simply the idea that through regulation and taxation and government participation, that rather than the money trickling down, through the largesse of uh-huh. <laughs> the wealthy business people and through the magical thinking of efficiency and choice, rather than that, that government and taxes can provide basic services and a level of, um, a level of, of comfort to the, the mass of citizens that, um, that prevents people from living in abject poverty, that standardizes and systematizes certain things like power, gas, electric, but also increasingly, you know, or, or what is true in socialist countries, medicine, right. um, things that are basic needs, housing, uh, that, creates a like a a shared level a share in the prosperity that is shared by everyone and the premise is that the natural resources of the world are co-owned by everyone the idea that just because you go put a stick in the ground and say i own all the oil under this stick doesn't necessarily mean that you do you know where did where did that idea come from you went and stuck a stick in the ground and you own all the oil. Um, there is a way of thinking that the, that the bounty of the earth is shared collectively. And I, and I think that's a, that is a compelling idea that, um, natural resources are shared. It's where we get, it's the foundation of ideas like the national parks and the national forests, um, that at a certain point in the, in the, expansion of this country it was we needed to preserve something in common um it was the idea when the north slope in alaska was being exploited there were there were a lot of different ideas about how that oil was going to get disbursed or how the ownership of it was and for a while the idea was basically like line up at the office and claim your 40 acres on the North slope. And the guy that hits it rich becomes a billionaire, like just average Joe. And eventually the oil companies convinced the state of Alaska that the best way to do it was to auction off those parcels 
At which point, all the little guys were cut out, right? The oil companies were the only ones that could afford to bid for those. But the state of Alaska imposed a, a not a huge tax, but mm-hmm. a tax yeah. on all the oil. And it's, you know, it has funded this enormous permanent fund in Alaska just by making this decision. We're going to tax, we're going to put, you know, levy a pretty minimal tax, frankly, on that oil because it needs to benefit the public good. So socialism is not radical because you can imp- you can apply it at any level you want. You can ratchet it up and socialize the oil companies, for instance, and say, well, there's no reason that oil companies should be private enterprises. Why does that make sense? Why not take a look at the fact that the oil is under the ground, under our country, and say it belongs to all of us? The government is going to take over oil production. It's not like that. It's not like we need a lot of, why are there different kinds of gas station? It's kind of dumb. It's not like the gas <laughs> is better or worse. Right. Why yeah, is like, it not and, just, and how, how many people have like a loyalty to a gas? Well, I only go to Exxon. I'll never go to Shell because and, ugh, and Shell. If they, and if they do, it's a sham. Right. It's right? just it's gas. another one of these sham choices. So why is gas not – and think about the amount of mo- public money that goes into subsidizing gas companies. Think about the tremendous inefficiencies, not inefficiencies in like Shell Oil trying to maximize their profit, but just the inefficiencies of there being 10 oil companies that are competing against one another. Why is it not just – U.S. gas, and everywhere mm. you go, there's a gas station, and the money that you pay in that gas goes into the public coffers, right? Instead, we 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 put a little tax on the gas, and that's how we get money, um, or it's one way that the U.S. government earns money. But why aren't we selling our own gas? Why didn't the state of Alaska just develop that oil field by itself and and sell it as Alaska state gas. There's no reason except that the uh, that we prefer private enterprise and you know and at a, at the point that you're dealing with British petroleum or whatever, I mean it's hard to say that these are some plucky people, you know, like lifting themselves up by their bootstraps. I mean British petroleum is as big as probably bigger then 70% of the governments, 70% of the states in the world, right? British Petroleum has a larger gross domestic product than Angola. I mean, Angola doesn't exist anymore. But. <laughs> the, so these ideas, like there are places, and it's, and it's one of the things that you, you see often referred to, you know, it's an example of when a totalitarian government comes into power, the first thing they do is nationalize the banks, nationalize the oil companies. And that's a kind of a, it's a symptom of a country becoming unfree. But that's often from the United States perspective. Um, the, the nation of Saudi Arabia, uh, they do, um, they do like manage their oil in a, in a way that the state of Alaska could have done. You know, the, the Saudis 
retain a lot of that money and they they contract out to the oil companies to to uh, exploit that oil but it's not like here in the US where it's like hey buddy you know as long as you pay your as long as you as long as your accountants don't find a way to avoid paying all your tax uh like go go you know full speed ahead so the socialism that's being proposed by Bernie is incredibly mild. Bernie is saying we need to socialize in you know basically insurance companies have made medicine prohibitive, prohibitively expensive such that the majority of people do not get to share in the affluence of the economic growth that America has experienced. America is affluent. We are a wealthy country. There is lots of money here. But medicine is one example of a good or service that should be provided by a country as wealthy as we are. Because mm-hmm. people get sick. It's, a, it's one of the fundamental sort of humanitarian services, right? If you're sick and you can't go get help, um, and you're living in a country that has as much money as we do, that's kind of uh, perverse. So there are lots of countries that have socialized medicine, England, Canada, our neighbors in Canada, and they gloat about it all the time. Now, there are inefficiencies there. You, you know, you have to wait sometimes to see a doctor. You don't, there's not a, you don't get to, pick and choose your plastic surgeon or whatever, you know, it's, there's give and take, but that basic service of medicine, the insurance companies got in between and, and saw that this was a place to profit and it has not become an efficient streamlined system. Insurance companies have produced this situation with hospitals and doctors where a band aid is getting billed for $50 because you know, the, the system has tons of corruption. It's become endemic within medicine. So Bernie's saying socialized medicine. Well, that's nothing. That's basic, easy peasy shit. And the only people opposed to it are insurance companies, honestly, and major, major, you know, hospitals and so forth. But because that is tied to this idea of choice and individuality and also tarnished with this, you know, this bullshit idea that socialism is some creeping cancer that if you allow it in the door, all of a sudden there, you know, there's some sort of commissar in your neighborhood that's telling you what TV you can buy. You know, that's just like so much hand-waving conservative horseshit. But libertarianism is so popular in the United States because just like that capitalist idea, libertarianism has this elegance of of thought behind it. The idea that people are going to act in their own self-interest and that generally that self-interest is it, – it, it aligns with other people's self-interest – And that mutual shared self-interest produces that same kind of efficient, elegant, 
society that's that's glued together by people, each one doing what they want and taking personal responsibility for those choices. Right. That's the key. And what we what libertarians imagine is that because they are ethical and smart and want to do what they want to do, that everyone also can be trusted with that authority. Right. That's the problem with and libertarianism. It is. And libertarians recognize that all people can't be trusted with that authority. But the idea that they aren't trusted, that there are systems in place that remove their own autonomy in in whatever, a thousand quadrants, right? Uh, is is like personally offensive to someone with a libertarian mentality. And, you know, anarchism is also a beautiful, beautiful system. But a lot of these systems require that everyone be everyone embrace the the system in all of its elegance, and that we live kind of more or less in a nation of philosopher kings. <laughs> this is this is a further problem, anarchism, libertarianism, and liberalism all assume that education will produce enlightenment and that opportunity produces enlightenment so that people that are given this authority over themselves will become enlightened because it's intrinsic to, uh, to education. That, that isn't necessarily true. People can be plenty educated and still be racist and, and, um, and evil. You know, what do you, I guess the question is, what do you do with evil? What do you do with, what do you do with people that are, they're bad that don't want to cooperate that want to that just want to see the world burn right now the people on the right say you have a strong police and you send people to jail and you and you hang them if they're bad uh, people on the left want to reform people they believe ultimately that people can be good if they're given opportunity that often immorality amorality is a product of a lack of opportunity because th there's this article of faith that if people have opportunity and are given basic services and have education, that they will necessarily become good, good citizens, good neighbors. I don't think libertarians share that belief. Ultimately, um, they just don't think it's their problem, which is, you know, unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that just as we collectively own the oil, we also collectively live in a society and, and we share the roads basically. And so you can't live according to a political doctrine that, um, that, that allows you to whatever, enforce your own doctrine on your own 15 acres. You know, you can't be Clive Bundy or whatever, Cliven Bundy, and flout the law. We would like to say thanks very much to Health IQ. If you average in a, you know eight, eight hours of sleep per night, uh, if you eat a quality or a plant-based diet, exercise four or more times per week, you're doing all the things that you need to do to ensure that you have a nice, healthy, long life. Isn't it time? that you uh, get financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, this is all the kinds of stuff that Health IQ does. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you 
on your life insurance. So if you're a runner or a cyclist, if you're into CrossFit, if you're really any other type of athlete, even if you're just a committed weekend warrior, if you're a vegetarian, if you're a vegan, you deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. But Health IQ, listen, this is not just a lead generator. They take you, that's uh you know, potential customers like us through the entire process of applying and the policy is underwritten by one of their top insurance partners. But the savings are exclusive to Health IQ. You won't find them anywhere else and you must qualify to get a special rate. So to see if you qualify, go to HealthIQ, H-E-A-L-T-H-I-Q, HealthIQ.com slash roadwork to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. And then depending on your score, as well as other qualifying factors, you could save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. So one more time, that is healthiq.com slash roadwork. That lets them know that we sent you. It starts the process with their cool little quiz that they have there. There's no commitment. And you even learn about other opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to healthy living. So again, check out healthiq.com slash roadwork. And we really do appreciate it their support. But the, the additional problem that we have right now in this country is that participatory democracy is, is a philosophy. And it's at the core of our uh, theoretical feeling that we are virtuous that what is more virtuous than everyone having a vote? It's just, it's just a, a core value that if everyone has a vote, that is an unassailable good. The problem with that is that people have not just competing philosophies, but there are a lot of people that have no philosophy that have given no thought to it at all that are actively, actively ignorant, not just profoundly ignorant, but pursue ignorance and uh, hold up their ignorance as a virtue because the, because fundamentally the first sign of ignorance is lack of understanding that you're ignorant. I don't remember who, what paraphrase whose quote that is, but I think it's brilliant. And it's true, right? If you're ignorant, the, the first thing you don't know is how ignorant you are. Right. So as we, as we promote participatory democracy, we get into a posture where the application of any one pure philosophy, any one true philosophy governing principle becomes impossible. Because there are going to be people that disagree with it and they have a vote. They have a vote, same as yours. And so you, with participatory democracy, get it, you have to convince a majority about your philosophy. And you have to convince a majority, which includes a lot of people that are not interested, a lot of people that, um, that you can make an appeal to their emotion. You can make a, an appeal that makes this logical disconnect between freedom 
and the different brands of gas. You can, you can connect the emotions that surround the idea that someone should have liberty and you can connect that to all kinds of things that aren't, aren't, that are unrelated. And if you make that appeal successfully enough, you can win the vote of someone for a policy that profoundly uh, disadvantages them. So within participatory democracy, we have at least right now two camps and for either camp for their system to succeed, it requires buy-in from the other camp and the other camp. Now we we've reached a place where neither camp is going to buy in at all to the, to the philosophy, the governing philosophy of the other camp. And you know, the, and the left is going to characterize the right as xenophobic and racist and classist. And, um, I mean, yeah, name it, right. All that we know yeah. what all the accusations are and the right is going to, is going to characterize the left as libertine and um, immoral and, you know, murdering babies and <laughs> teaching homosexuality in the schools and, and also trying to restrict choice, restrict opportunity to turn the world into a, into a leftist fascist state. And the accusation of fascism that is leveled by both sides against the other is, is a way of describing the recognition that each side would prefer to have the authority to just impose their worldview on the other side, right? The left wants to, the left believes that the right's philosophies are so immoral that the only thing that can make this country operable is to just impose on 50% of the country, just impose values on them. And just say like, you know what? You're no longer allowed to be racist. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to be punished and you're going to be restricted in your ability to be racist. And you're going to be like, you know, we're going to mandate uh, cultural things. We're going to mandate the way things operate. And in, in a lot of ways, the left has been very successful over the last 50 years in saying governments can no longer discriminate. Um, and corporations can no longer discriminate. Anybody that is benefiting from the government can no longer discriminate between people. And that's been a, a leftist project that uh, libertarians and conservatives are 100% opposed to because, you know, they'll tout all kinds of things. Well, we can't have a men's club anymore. We can't have a smoking club. You know, all this stuff that feels like their choice has been reduced, their ability, their freedom has been reduced. And the left says, yeah, but, you know, before, um, black people weren't given home loans and that is unjust, right? And so, you know, a lot of progress has been made by, by liberals. And the conservatives see that as this constant assault on their freedom. And on their, their freedom of opportunity and on their freedom of self, uh, self-reliance, you know, their, their, their abilities to, um, live as they choose. 
and to have choice, to have all these choices that have been promised them, um, to, you know, have whatever, 70 kinds of toothpaste. But the conservatives also have a lot of ways that they want to restrict the choices of the left. They want to impose a kind of monotheistic monoculture, basically. Right. A, uh, the idea that culturally there's one good way, there's one good thing. And the idea that the left has of this multiplicity of viewpoints, a multiplicity of influences and cultures all being welcomed in. Well, and the left's idea that that represents freedom to them. The conservatives don't see that as freedom at all. They see that as disruptive. They see it as undermining the essential values that make us good to one another, right? If you take God out of the schools or whatever, I mean, the idea being the only reason we're good to each other is because, because God has shared his values with us mm -hmm. and to live without them is to live in a world where there's no reason to be good to one another. And there's no reason not to, you know, and the conservatives use all kinds of scare tactics like, well, why not just be a pedophilia? Why not marry your dog? <laughs> you know, all this kind of like hyperbole. Right. But at their core, what they're saying is there's a right way to do things. And to do and to intentionally pursue a multiplicity of ideas is to just entertain 50 bad ideas when the good idea we already know. History has winnowed all the bad ideas out and we have the good ideas. And here they are, apple pie, America, <laughs> God, and, you know, and Betty Sue at the, at the malt shop. And also investment banks and the military industrial complex. So Bernie is a, is a very mild political variation on liberalism that is not radical at all. Um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was more radical in his, in his policies than Bernie Sanders. It's just, we've gone so far, um, away from the idea of a collective responsibility for one another that now Bernie seems insane. Um, but he's not, you know, he is, he, he describes himself as a socialist, but really he's just a, he's a Democrat from 1935. Um, and the criticism of, uh, that Bernie and, and his followers have about the democratic party is legitimate. The democratic party has become a capitalist apologist party because somewhere along the line, they allowed the, they allowed capitalism to, to set the terms and what happens is, you know, you have a period of economic growth and everybody's and everybody feels like, Hey, things are going good. 
And the Democrats wanted in on that. You know, they not only wanted in on the money, but they wanted in on the good vibes, the feeling that things were going good. They didn't want to be tarred as the party that was taking 50% of your money in taxes to pay for welfare. Mm. You know, this idea, this idea, again, that there's a right way of doing things. One of, one of the core ideas there is that you work hard. This is a libertarian notion. This is a, this is a, a, an American notion, right? You Mm -hmm. work hard. And if you don't work hard, then you, then you fail. And if you fail, that's your problem. And that is counter to the idea that prosperity should benefit everybody at a certain level. And that, that we have a shared responsibility to one another, that if people, if families are falling out the bottom and they're living in their cars and they're dying of disease, that that reflects poorly on us all. But in order to pay everybody a living, you know, in in order for there to be a basic, you know, a national basic income, which is, which is a, a, a proposal of socialism that everybody just earn a basic income regardless of what they do, you know, that housing be provided for everyone because it's a basic need. In the end, that costs less, right? To house a chronic alcoholic, for instance, in a, in a, in a building for alcoholics, there's one here in Seattle, chronic alcoholics have an, have a, a city run apartment building where they live and they can drink. And there's a guy on at the front desk that can perform CPR. It ends up costing the city way less money than it costs to provide all those chronic alcoholics with their constant in and out of the emergency room, constant ambulance trips, fire department trips. It just costs less. It's efficient to just keep them all in a building and give them a certain amount of beer every day. But that infuriates people who believe that there's a moral component to work and that for those people to have that, to have the ability to sit and drink all day without working is offensive to God. Mm. You know, it's like it enrages people and they would vote against it no matter what you said. If you said it costs pennies on the dollar and the money that we spend taking them to the emergency room is your tax money, uh, they're not going to hear that. They're not going to hear it. They, in a way, believe in a retributive God. They want bad people to suffer. They, um, they rejoice when bad people suffer. And, you know, that's a personality type, honestly. It's the the same people that laugh when somebody slips on a banana peel. Right. You know, you want, it's a a kind of, in a way, it's a belief in instant karma. You want somebody to pay for their mistakes. And, you know, the left doesn't think that way. The left does not laugh when somebody slips on a banana peel and they often are, they often are credulous and too earnest in that regard. You know, the left will often look at a chronic 
murderer and say, well, he came from a broken home. We need to have empathy for this person. Um, and that's, you know, again, like in the main, that empathetic nature that the left has often, you know, if it were given free reign, a lot of people who are right now in prison for selling weed or whatever, right. Would be productive citizens, frankly. And, you know, uh, and the fact that they're in prison is a crime. Um, but you know, the, but the, the flip side of that is that there are people that need to be in jail. Right. There, there are bad people that we just can't think of anything else to do besides put them in jail. There's not a, I mean, what are you going to do? Drown them? (laughs) You can't, you know, you can't like, there are some people you can't reform. There are some people that education will not make virtuous. Anyway, that was an extremely long mm-hmm. monologue. What do you think about that, Dan? It's a lot. I mean, I'm probably going to have to go back and re-listen to it all again because you kind of walked me through the whole thing, which is great, but it's a lot to think about. But, you know, my question is, how does somebody who has – would okay, let me roll that back and ask a different question instead. Um it seems like as as much as you've explained it that that a lot of, or some of what bernie thinks or is uh, his philosophies are different from what a traditional democrat might view as their no. philosophies no no i think bernie's philosophies are different from what a contemporary democrat okay okay, okay. i think that bernie's philosophies are actually more in line with what a traditional Okay. At least a traditional 20th century Democrat would, a traditional mid-century, 20th century Democrat would imagine. Do you think, okay, I'm sorry, continue. Well, organized labor is a classic example of a group of people who were being abused by the ownership class people that owned businesses. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that they made those businesses more efficient and more profitable was to underpay workers, to make them work long hours, to uh, give them no benefits. And eventually workers through the adoption of, again, one of these beautiful philosophies realized that if they all banded together, they had as much power as the owners to determine what happened in the factory. And organized labor was intrinsically a a leftist policy, a leftist way of thinking because it was collectivist people banded together to lift everyone up and to take some of that profit and some of that efficiency and spread that wealth among the people that were directly responsible for that success in business. Yeah. And organized labor spent most of the 20th century, increasing its power, increasing its authority. And then at some point along the way, organized labor became a massive, massive industry. And, you know, it was difficult to regulate. And there was a lot of money there and corruption got in. But but organized labor, because it was collectivist, 
intrinsically was not that interested in efficiency. And so they started to make demands that actually worked against efficiency and against um, innovation because they were primarily interested in benefiting the, the mass of labor. Right. And this was a big part of the Reagan revolution was that Reagan came in at a time when organized labor had reduced the efficacy of manufacturing by skimming so much of the energy and the profit off that innovation and efficiency started to suffer. And that's why we had all the, those, it's one of the reasons why we had all those malaise years where the quality of American industrial output started to decline. And there was a lot of, you know, there was an overabundance of sort of, um, fat sort of collecting over on the side of what was not a universally collectivist organization, but kind of a one that was restricted, right? Because labor also didn't allow everyone in and it became a, it became effectively a political party of its own. Now we're living in a world where organized labor doesn't have anywhere near that power. It was eviscerated by the conservatives over the last 40 years. And organized labor tends to be um, blue-collar people who increasingly are swayed by and convinced by this argument that freedom is uh, is jeopardized by collectivism and and the fact that collective thinking is now associated with this multiplicity of ideas and identities and thought is part of what makes it so threatening. And, and organized labor is no longer a leftist voting block. You know, it's here in Seattle, our avowedly socialist city council person, Shama Sawant, um, she's antagonistic to organized labor and often, fighting them over projects because organized labor in her estimation has become this sort of bloated quasi conservative, um, group of people that are standing in the way of, of her socialist utopia. And it's insane to think that a socialist would be against organized labor. It's just that she's not a socialist. She's actually a Marxist Leninist. And she doesn't believe in organized labor. She believes in state control. And that's another problem, right, is that the word socialist can be used by a lot of people to mean a lot of different things. I mean, Hitler was a national socialist, and he called him – used the word socialist there to, a, to mask mm-hmm. his intentions. And a lot of – a lot of people that are Marxist-Leninists will say socialist because communist is not – it doesn't read very well right now. Now, uh, uh, the whole Bernie bro problem mm-hmm. yes. is just that there's a generation of people who 
who feel politics very personally and have personalized it as they have personalized almost every aspect of culture so that it becomes, I mean, politics is always personal, but it becomes, um, it has become with social media, you know, this fraught, angry, accusatory world where we're, and you see it all the time, uh, where an us versus them mentality has infected the way people talk. And the, uh, you know, I am, I am critical of the Bernie campaign. I don't believe that you can just, you can just speak policies aloud and, and that that's enough to enact those policies. But I support Bernie Sanders. I think he could be 30% more leftist and he Mm. wouldn't be leftist enough for me. But to be critical of him at all, to, to, to say like, Hey, this isn't the way that you get things done. This isn't political. This isn't politics. This is demagoguery. Um, it incites incredible vitriol from the internet toward me. Young people that listen to this show that are fans Mm -hmm. are accusing me of being against the movement or whatever. When the fucking movement has been my whole, it's my whole philosophy. I'm a fucking communist for not a communist, but I'm definitely, uh, I'm, I definitely do not believe that capitalism is the highest form of government. I believe in collectivism. I believe in a sort of moderate approach to state regulation and taxation and the state providing basic goods and services. I believe in collectivizing the oil companies. I, you know, I think there, I think that, that the internet should be a public utility, all kinds of ideas that are, that, you know, the, the movement can't happen fast enough for me, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to be fucking critical of Bernie or of any idea. Uh And the problem with the Bernie bros is as soon as you say one word against the candidate, my God, it's as if you're, it's, it's like it's 1540 and you said a bad word about Jesus. It's that kind of messianic, uh, political personality that I just, it just disgusts me. I can't bear it. Um, and it makes me apparently an enemy of the people. So I think that that's that toxicity in particular contrasted against the incredible toxicity on the right, um, has just created this environment where it's like, well, I guess we're not talking about politics anymore. I guess politics isn't interesting to us. We're not, it's not, uh, a place, it's not a, uh, a public square where ideas are bandied about. It's a place where everybody already knows all the facts. They know everything they need to know. And now it's just a question of shouting. I was on Reddit yesterday and there was some thread where I read 600 comments that all 100% agreed with each other. And yet they were all written in a total lecturing tone. And basically the, the idea, the premise of the thread was that slavery is bad and 600 people, 600 Redditors felt the need to explain to one another why slavery is bad. And it's like, who is the audience for this? 
why do you all feel the need to log on here and explain to each other mm. why slave? Do you think that there's anyone on this thread that is being convinced by your, your mutual jack off society? Like you're not convincing anyone. You're just reinforcing the fact that you live in a, in a thought bubble and it's, it, slavery is bad. I think that that, I think we can accept that. And there are people that don't think it is, and they do need to be convinced, but they're not on this particular Reddit page. And to get that message to them and to convince that half of the population that the slaves weren't happy or whatever is a lot harder than just logging onto Twitter and yelling at people that share your belief system. So that, I mean, that's my two cents on that. I can tell that I have said, I have gone too far. <laughs> you I've think talked, so? <laughs> I've taught, I've talked too much. And if there's anyone still listening to this program, I'm sure that most people clicked out of here no, a long time ago. I don't think so. 